Revivify, design and building pros podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Revivify podcast. I'm your host, Grace Mace. And we're very fortunate to have Robert Fortunato today. He is the owner builder of Green Idea House and the president of the Four Strategy Consulting. And we ha- there's so much to learn from you. Robert, I'd love to, for you to talk about how you guys started and you're, pa- you're fascinating and I'd love to discuss and for everyone to learn more about you. Grace, you're very kind and I, I appreciate you putting this together and, and helping other people understand how to you know, affordably build what is possible today. Uh, green, net zero, zero energy um, buildings um, that perform better and are less expensive than standard construction. Um, we got involved in this uh, quite by accident um, in that uh, when my son was born, uh, he kicked me out of my office in our little 1300 square foot house. <laughs> and uh, so we needed more space, uh, but we had worked and traveled internationally uh, for two years. And we just saw that people uh, around the globe have a different perspective on uh, materials and design and uh, sort of how things operate. We're also, uh, you know, big architecture fans and uh, fans of um, anthropology as well. And uh, in our travels, we uh, visited uh, Mesa Verde in Colorado and uh, saw the cliff dwelling uh, where the Native Americans lived. And it was really inspirational uh, because there were caves all along the all along this canyon that these Native Americans could have lived in, but they picked this one place, and um, and it was June. Uh, it was quite quite near the summer solstice, and the whole cave was in shade uh, because it had like a fourteen foot overhang on it, and it just occurred to me that these people were really smart. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago, these people were really smart, and we had forgotten uh, a bit of what they did to keep themselves cool in the summertime and warm in the winter. And uh, when I took my compass out and I looked at the orientation of this cave, it was almost due south. So they knew exactly what they were doing. They could have put their cave, their palace anywhere. Um, you know, there are plenty of caves along this canyon, but they, they knew that if they positioned that cave with that 14-foot overhang in the south, orientation. They knew that they, in the Northern Hemisphere, they would get plenty of passive heating and they would get free cooling at the same time. So it kind of inspired us. And so when, when we needed some additional space, uh, that's what, you know, basically the design was about. We tried to replicate that in the design of our house. And uh, it led to a whole series of things uh, that came forward in terms of looking for the kinds of technologies that were less expensive and uh, and work better than standard construction. I love how you just taking that experience, being inspired by something that simple and elegant, and then pushing forward to creating such a remarkable space. And oftentimes people think about this as more theoretical discussion. You know, you learn the academic world, you have that those those discussions, but in reality is is absolutely possible. Everything you described is feasible, but yet why do you think we're not making it as it's not wildly popular as it should be for this net zero house? It's kind of interesting in that um, you know we're um, we have a lot to to uh, be thankful for, right? Uh, in terms of the oil infrastructure that was built, it powered our country for a hundred years, 
and uh, and it has worked relatively well, right? Uh, so you know, uh, there's there's things to be thankful for about that, and there's the things to regret about that as well. We know what's happening with the climate and um, you know everything else that's that's going on. Uh, but there was a period of time where we thought we were sort of could control nature as a result of cheap oil, essentially. And so uh, glass buildings went up and all kinds of things went uh, forward with the knowledge that we could we could sort of overcome nature uh, by putting a lot of um, fossil fuels, you know, burning a lot of fossil fuels and make those buildings comfortable as a result of that. And I think we're just coming to a different awareness now, saying we don't really need those things uh, we can work smarter, not harder, in a way which is be beneficial for our, both our pockets, uh, you know, in terms of our wallets, and uh, and for the environment as, at the same time. And you, you know, we, and we can't discount people are much more concerned about our health, uh, you know, as well. So by not burning fossil fuels, uh, the locus in which we live immediately becomes that much more healthy. And then that, that's a brilliant idea. And then just even simply as to, I mean, when you talk about the floor heating and so forth, if you mind going to a little bit, just breaking out every aspect of what needs to happen for people to begin to understand what this means. Yeah, so uh, the easiest way to explain it is, is to think of uh, your house uh, as a bit of a cooler, if you will, right? And, uh, and that's how we thought about our house. It's, uh, it has the opportunity to heat and cool itself if, in fact, it can capture that heat in some form or fashion. And that's sim simple insulation. Uh, but we haven't really done insulation well, and we haven't done overhangs well, as I described before, uh, in order to grab that heat or cooling and, and store it for a, a period of time, essentially. And so we did really, really simple things um, that actually saved money. So, for example, uh, you're an architect and you know the standard practice for uh, a framed wood wall is uh, you put the studs, they're centered 16 inches on center. And, um, and that's just by code, you know, that, that that's the way we built. And I don't want to do anything crazy uh, because I know it's hard for people to Nobody wants to live in a mud hut. Nobody wants to live in a spaceship. Or there's a very particular few who want to do that. But most people don't. And we didn't want to build a mud hut. And we didn't want to build a spaceship. Uh, and we knew most contractors were very familiar with wood construction. So we wanted to build two by four, you know, house. But if you simply, um, instead of putting those studs 16 on center, you put them 24 inches on center. That means that you have much more space for insulation on the interior of that cavity. It's a really simple concept. And by there's a, there's a known exception to the code that allows you to do that thing um, without much difficulty. And so we learned about this thing called advanced framing that really changed the properties of the house uh, so that the assemblies were much more able to be insulated. And so it created that cooler that we're talking about. Um, we did you know, very simple things to air seal the property and very simple things to insulate it that much better. But if you think about that assembly, we're actually using less wood in that assembly than a standard construction and uh, more insulation. So the wood is R3, which is the resistance to heat and cold. So it's, very, it's not very insulative, if you will, uh, where what's inside the wall is R13. 
that has much more insulating properties. So you have less wood and more insulation. And so you have a better assembly. And at the same time, it's less expensive. And so that's what we're shooting for with everything that we're thinking about, how we do this uh, not only better, but less expensive. I, I like twofers. Uh, so that's uh, one example of a twofer that we had. No, that's great because the, the, there's an economic benefit and also just overall sustainable. And let's, I love to take this, this path from the envelope into, we talked about the, 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 the structure piece of it. Now let's build from the ground up. Then you're talking about the floor. You also have interesting arrangement for your flooring heating. So I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, so a lot of people, um, you know, they want to put in-floor heating in, and we looked at the in-floor heating, and, and we actually, as, as the, the project got more and more popular, we had somebody who wanted to donate um, in-floor heating for a project. <clears throat> and it was um, one of those things where it was early in the project, and, and I was a little shot, taken back by it, and I went to my wife, and I said, you know, hey, do we want to do this? And she, she asked the same questions that we, we asked from the inception. How much does it cost and does it actually work? And so I did a little investigation and uh, it turned out it was very expensive uh, for the average consumer. And even though we would potentially get it donated, um, if the average person couldn't buy it for less than standard construction, we actually didn't want it in the house. So we passed on it and we later found out that in our climate zone, we're climate zone six, so it's very mo moderate. Uh, what happens is at 10 o'clock in the morning, the sun comes out usually, and it starts to heat up our house and all houses. And the problem is with um, with an in-floor heating system, you have a very large what's called thermal mass. So it takes a long time to heat up and a long time to cool down. And what we found from other friends of ours who did install that kind of flooring system is they found that it didn't actually work in that they had to open their windows starting at 10 o'clock in the morning because it would be overheating and they couldn't cool down that thermal slab fast enough. And so we actually uh, went with um, baseboard radiant water heating system uh, that was much less expensive and, uh, and it heats up very quickly and it cools down very quickly. Yes. Uh, and so in, in terms of the cooling, uh, we're lucky here. We don't actually need air conditioning. And uh, we built in the center of our house is our stairwell and we have windows on the back of the stairwell that the hot air basically just rises and evacuates and it creates a circulation of air in the house. Even in the wintertime, we leave those windows cracked open just a little bit to keep fresh air moving throughout the house. Uh, and it still stays very, very comfortable. And then I understand for your garage, you also have this water heating radiance. Yes. So I'd love to hear about that too. So we, we, uh, we have an interesting orientation. Our house faces southwest. Okay. With, the, uh, with a five-foot overhang at the top of our house, uh, the only thing that doesn't get shaded in the heat of the, the, the summertime is the garage. And the garage door uh, has a specific opportunity to it. So we, we put a glass window across the top of the garage door that allows the passive heat to enter into the garage and heat up the thermal mass in there. And so then you say, what, do you, what would you do with that thermal mass? Um, and there are things called heat pump hot water heaters. And um, they're on the market. They're less expensive than what everybody uses today, which are um, tankless hot water heaters. And they're so much more efficient that it's crazy. Um, uh, the average tankless hot water heater is about 93% efficient. 
And these are about 350% efficient. And you say, how can it be more than 100% efficient? These things actually take the air in the space and they take the heat out of the air and they push it into the water uh, at an incredible efficiency rate. So there's a heat pump in there uh, that does that. And um, Gracie, you have a heat pump in your house. I know you do. Do you know where it is? Down in the basement. So it's not very efficient. Okay. So you, you have uh, so you have heat pump um, technology in, in your, your building. Right. But in your apartment, you have a heat pump. Do you know where it is? I don't live in an apartment. In our house, we actually have a basement. Yes. No, I'm sorry. In, in, in your house, uh, you, you actually have a heat pump. Yes. It's called the refrigerator. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> right? So this thing is like a reverse refrigerator. And so you know when you're standing in front of the refrigerator and you feel the heat of the refrigerator down at your feet? Yes. So it's evacuating the heat inside the box and it's throwing it down at the floor, right? So it's right. taking the heat out of the box and pushing it outside. Right. This unit takes the heat in the room and pushes it into the water with that same level of efficiency. So it's basically doing the same thing. But right. it's so efficient uh, that it can do that at 350% efficiency uh, okay. for much less cost uh, and no pollution, essentially, because we have solar panels on the roof that power that unit. Uh, so it's all electric. Uh, so it works really, really well. So we have one of them that does our um, domestic hot water, so the showers and so forth. And we have another one that runs that heating system that I was telling you about with the baseboard um, radiant oh. heat. That's interesting. Wow, I, that's brilliant. And now let's build a little bit further in. You talked about solar panels, and I think many homes yeah. are now are getting used to have solar panels. For us, we have 22 panels, and I didn't nice. 26 panels, and that was able to cover all your electric needs in your house. So, um, so uh, when we disconnected the gas line, the engineers were very, very nervous. Um, especially 10 years ago, people weren't comfortable with this idea and uh, they didn't think we would actually get to our goal, which was net zero energy and zero carbon. And so um, they were really nervous about it uh, when we first came out of the ground. And we didn't want to have the ribbon cutting for a year uh, until we had a year's worth of bills. We didn't want to have the ribbon cutting. And we wanted to know it, whether it worked or it didn't work. We wanted to be able to tell people this is what worked, this is what didn't work, or this is why it didn't work, and this is so everybody can learn from the idea. And um, so a year went by, and not only did it work, Grace, but it overgenerated by two and a half megawatts, a huge amount of energy. The building was so efficient that the engineers didn't even know how to model it correctly. And so we ended up with two and a half megawatts extra. And so we bought two electric cars and it fully powers the two electric cars and it's still net zero energy. Wow. So it really works well. It really, really work, works well. Now we have two electric cars too. <laughs> nice, nice. So we're also a little bit behind. So it could be the shading with the winter and whatnot. So, but we're still new with this whole system. So love to... For you to talk about, for someone, let's say they're contemplating about putting putting solar panels in their house, what yeah. things should you advise them to consider? And yeah, so there's a number of things that um, that I see people um, 
make small small mistakes uh, on you know I advise people you know on on solar systems and other things to optimize them. Uh, oftentimes um, they're oriented incorrectly for what you're trying to do, and I find it. And he, they wanted us to orient ours south, right on our building. Right. And uh, but but yeah, if you if you look at how the sun drops in the summer. Right, you realize that the sun actually drops northwest in the sky. Right. So if you orient your panel south, you're missing a lot of the afternoon sun in the summer, right. and that's the most valuable right. um, sun there is. So we oriented ours southwest instead, and I think we get a lot more gain, solar gain, as a result of that. Um, there's a program called PV Watts that will estimate your total gain. Uh, throughout the year, given your longitude, your latitude, and all the rest of the things in your orientation. And um, they estimated that we would get about 9.5 um, megawatt hours per year out of our solar system. And we get we get about 10.6. Uh, and I think it's because the, the orientation right. uh, is what it is. Uh, so there's a number of tricks uh, to maximizing your gain from the solar system. Um, and we get up there probably once every six months and, and you know, clean it off and make sure it's, you know, operating correctly. And, you know, we just kind of keep an eye on it. Uh, but um, the beauty of those systems are they're solid state. And if there's anything that goes wrong, I get an email that tells me, hey, panel, you know, 27 is doing, 26 is doing something funny. Right. And uh, you can, you know, uh, call the company and, you know, deal with it um, in that way. But um, for the most part, um, it's been the best, one of the best investments that I've ever made. It cost about $18,000. Right. Um, and it will, it will pay for itself in about 6.6 .6 years. Um, it will completely um, uh, pay back its carbon footprint in about that same time. And over the life of the 25-year warranty on the system, uh, it will save me about $94,000. So it's a great investment. Huge investment. And oftentimes people don't think about when they do the, the amortization, they don't think about the gas they didn't have to pay for or, That's or right. the inconvenience of oil change or all sorts of things or car maintenance that most cars do need to, regular gas cars required to take. And meanwhile, electric cars... I love the fact that I don't have to go gas station anymore or then yes. going to just maybe once a year for my get, for my car uh, just check with the dealers to make sure all the, the tires are working and so forth. It's brilliant. And so if you start putting those dollars into it, it actually, if you really, when you mentioned about six, what was it, six years? Or yep. so, and maybe even less, consider how much time, mm -hmm. how much money you put in just on the, maintaining a regular gas car. I love that you lived it. I talk to a lot of people who are interested in the subject and, you know, they interview me and so forth, but the fact that you live it and you understand that. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't miss those oil changes or gas stations or any of that nonsense at all. And I love the convenience. Just when you come home, you need to charge up, plug in, just like you would plug in your phone. It's that simple. Exactly. Often yeah. people think this is overwhelming. It's too complicated. It's like, and they ask the question, what, have you, what happens if you run out? Yeah, your electricity. Well, there are tons of places. I mean, we're very fortunate to live in places that actually have a lot of charging stations. 
Yeah. I understand some other parts of the country may not have that kind of convenience. But in general, if you can't plan correctly, you can actually manage this without any problem. It's um, amazing. And yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, and the cars are getting so smart. Yes. So I'll come home and I'll plug in my car. And it knows the time of use patterns of my utility. So it won't turn back on unless I'm, you know, urgently need it and I tell it to. It won't turn back on until it's the optimal time for the grid and for the um, for the cost of energy uh, to start recharging itself. So it's you know <clears throat> I think it's even smarter than our, than my phone at this point. <laughs> I think so too. Same with our arrangements too. Now you talked about the grid, and that's the interesting thing. A lot of people don't understand um, when you put solar panels on your house, unless you have batteries set up. Uh, do you have batteries set up for your home? We, we decided not to go with the battery because we realized <clears throat> that the grid is a battery and, and we were going to buy two electric cars, which have batteries in them as well, uh, which we use as backups. Uh, so I bought um, an inverter. Okay. And, uh, if you want a tip on this, I can send you a link. Uh, yeah. For 300 bucks, you can buy an inverter that connects to your electric car that allows me to plug my house back into the battery in my car. Uh, so all this is possible uh, today, it's, and it's not that expensive. Oh, um, yes, if you might share that with me, we'll love to share yeah, with you. Happy to. That's brilliant. I, I didn't think about that, but that makes sense. But a lot of times people worry about, well, what happens, you know, you're sending a bunch of, during the day, your panels are collecting a bunch of uh, sun rays converting to electricity, and then when power outage or a transformer blow up, what happens then? Yeah. So there's there's a you know there's sort of a um, a conversation that goes around. Well, n number one, uh, the grid can't take my power in the middle of the day. No one's home. No one's using that power. Well, right now everyone's home, but that's a different right. story. But you know the sort of the uh, conversation is uh, you know basically it's a waste to get a giant solar system because uh, you know nobody's going to be using that electricity and you're just putting a burden on the grid. And um, I don't know about you, but I am one of two people on my whole block who has solar panels, right? Really? Yeah, there aren't many people with solar panels. And so what happens to the energy in my house is it powers the next two or three houses down the road. It's not like it gets wasted or something like that. Um, so a lot of people don't understand that, that um, the power is just basically just powering the houses next to us. And uh, we've been contemplating batteries. We're watching battery storage, the price of battery storage go down significantly. And uh, we would definitely consider that uh, going forward. But to your question, when the power goes out, uh, that's why I mentioned my car. Um, the Tesla battery currently has six, uh, no, I'm sorry, 13.5 kilowatt hours as a capacity to it. So it's a, you know, it's a decent sized battery, but my, uh, my uh, Chevy Bolt, has a 60 kilowatt hour battery in it. So it's a huge battery. Yeah. And so if I can tap into that for resiliency, I have a huge amount of capacity. Uh, and so that's what we do with that inverter that I was mentioning before. Yes, okay, now, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. That's a brilliant setup. <laughs> that's really actually really smart. You don't have to buy one more thing, essentially, right? right. And now, as your house, because is a net zero house, um, 
what would you advise as a homeowner? How do they navigate through these kind of decisions and opinions that, you know, what's the best way to start? Yeah. Um, so I, I say to anybody who's contemplating, you know, renovating their house or building a new house, that's the best time to think about these things because there are things that are um, relatively expensive after you're done that could be done for almost no cost when you're in the process of designing your house as, as you, you and you, you know, the product that you're representing um, are about is about planning in advance and executing on those plans. Right. And every good architect knows that it's easy and inexpensive to change a line on the drawing. Absolutely. But when you're in construction becomes very, very expensive. So the idea is to really think ahead and plan ahead. Uh, so in that critical time when you're talking to contractors, you're talking to architects, have it in your mind that this is an objective, that um, actually I don't want to be paying for fuel in the future. Uh, we all know that the, the price of fuel, even if it's $2 a gallon, like you said, I, I don't want to wait for an oil change. I don't want my spark plug, you know, like all the rest of the mechanical stuff. Uh, um, I have no interest in waiting in the dealership anymore. It's just not something I do or want to do in the future. And if you want that to be a part of your future and you want cleaner air in your house and better appliances that actually cost less money than standard stuff, uh, it's, it's easy to do it up front. Uh, it's a little bit more tricky to retrofit uh, going forward, but that's certainly possible as well. And uh, I just uh, heard Southern California Edison, uh, we teach a class for Southern California Edison. They just announced a $1,000 rebate for heat pump hot water heaters. Uh, so that's basically the cost of the unit. Uh, so, you know, they want these things to be on the market because uh, for them, um, they know that it's reducing the pollution that goes into the air, number one. And if you think about it, a heat pump hot water has a, a heater has a tank to it, right? A 50 gallon tank. And that actually acts as a battery if you will. It's a thermal battery. And so you can heat that hot water in off-peak periods. Right. Turn the unit off during the peak periods when the grid actually can't handle more of a load. And so you can time these things. So there's a demand, what they call demand element to them, where they can be switched on and off to help the grid have resiliency as well. And you would never know the difference because there's enough water in there that you could take three or four showers and not even notice the difference when the thing's off. So there's a lot of intelligence built into these things that um, that tankless gas hot water heaters currently don't have and couldn't do. That's really interesting. Wow, we, we have to dive a little bit more deep on that. And so yeah. as, a, as a pro, when they approaching thinking about these kind of problems and not all homeowners are as versus you are, um, how would they even start having a conversation engaged? Because the, their initial reaction is, or misconception, is going to be costing them a lot more. And I don't, right. I want to maintain my budget here. And so, yeah. how would they start that those conversation? And is are there tools for them to show? Here's a regular construction based on your scope, and here's what you do if you do consider sustainable options. And here's you know whatever percentage on average cooking and what the trade-off or the benefit uh, down the road. Yeah, this is the, this is the tricky part uh, because the, the least expensive thing for the architect to do, as you know, Grace, is to basically build the same building that they just built again, right? 
for them, that's the easiest and cheapest thing to do. And right. for, I used to consult to one of the largest architectural and engineering firms in the world, and they knew that very well. If you can recycle your plans, you know, it's much less expensive than creating something from new. Right. So what I tell people is you have to go to somebody who's actually done it, right. uh, who actually knows what they're doing. And so they don't have to reinvent it. Uh, they've already done it. They've already invented it. And they can share with you the next iteration of, of their design, as opposed to getting somebody to switch from their old technology into a new technology. In my experience, that's very hard to do. <clears throat> Sometimes very painful. But there are a lot of uh, young professionals who are coming into the industry and trying to break through. And they, yeah. one of the things that they care passionate about is the sustainable design. And Absolutely. they do care about these kind of nuance and how to make sure that for long-term longevity for their future generations to actually start now so we, we can actually pay back and see the dividends in their lifetime. And so for them, um, obviously, having those conversations with homeowners sometimes you know, like we talked about, it's not most convenient discussions or pleasant discussion where you talk about, well, I'm going to increase your budget about 10 more, 10 percent more just because we believe this is the right thing to do. Oftentimes, yeah. this mentality is, it may be the right thing to do, but I only got this much. And as we all know, if we can convince them or educate them enough where they have that knowledge, they will willing to offer that 10%, knowing that long-term actually pays off far more than what they're investing at this point. So, yeah. Uh, so, Grace, I, I, I appreciate that. And uh, number one, the young people are really sometimes the only thing that give me hope. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, that's why yes. I want to be out there as well. <laughs> and so I appreciate that perspective. And, and, and oftentimes when we were doing tours at our pro pro project, uh, we would have very specific tours for, for young architects uh, because um, when they were sitting there and uh, one of them you know, looked up at, at me and says, how do you know all this? He looked up and, and we were talking about passive heating and cooling stuff. And I said, wait a minute, you're in architecture school. How do you not know this? He says, you don't understand. They don't teach us this stuff. We have to learn this stuff in other places. Right. And I think there's, you know, I think, it is shifting though, you know, it is shifting and, and more, uh, there is more understanding that this is the norm, right? Um, so I think that's one piece of it. Uh, the second piece of it is to help people understand um, when they're talking to homeowners, it's not more expensive at this point. Uh, we know that we can do this for the same cost or less than. If you consider that it, uh, for our house, for example, um, if we wanted to put a tankless hot water heater in, we would have had to replace the gas line coming in uh, right. because you can't use the three-quarter inch line. You need a one-inch line. Right. To trench that gas line into my home alone would have been $7,000. Right. You buy a lot of solar panels for $7,000. <laughs> and then to then take that piping into the house and then move it around for, for a gas stove, uh, or gas furnace, all the rest of that piping, it's about $1,000 per unit to right. move it around. So um, right off the bat, if I don't need to do that trenching, uh, you're immediately saving a lot of money. The second thing is, if I don't need to deal with one more utility, I don't have to wait for them to install their meter and inspect the line. And guess what, with a gas trench, I can't put anything else in that trench. You right. know, Grace. 
So what you have to do is then have another trench for the electric, electric sewer and everything else that we put in the other trench. Right. So this is nothing but an add-on cost at that point. So we, we were saving money from the get-go uh, by just simply cutting off the gas line. Uh, so if you can help, you know, owners understand that there's an opportunity for money savings. And just like I explained with the, uh, the wall assembly, uh, if you stack up enough of those small things, you actually end up being in the black instead of the red uh, with these kinds of buildings. And I just think about oftentimes people, the front yard, backyard, whatnot, uh, trees grow over years. The roots are growing through the trenches and all the piping or, or the pipes are, are, are bursting because of what happens. And then just think about the mains come back or right. it's reconstructing this whole thing. As you're talking, I'm thinking, you're right. Absolutely right. I actually didn't make the connection until just now talking with you. It's really fascinating. Make it simple. That's the key. Make it simple. And that's just one bit of complexity that we don't need anymore. We just simply don't need it. Yeah, just take, I mean, as technology advances, we really need to think, start thinking about, and, and truthfully, like you mentioned, we have these great thinkers out there, thought leaders like yourself. <laughs> look at the overall strategy and look at how we're constructing a building. Where are things that we can minimize and reduce and start taking those out and just looking at the purity of what it's supposed to be? It's a home yeah. that you create for your family that's safe and comfortable and it's livable. That's the goal, right? That's it. So start deducting these things that don't need to be there and really distill down to the essentials and still have a, a credible, I mean, just look at your home. It's like incredible space. I mean, this bright light coming through, it just looks very comfortable and very you know, temperature moderate, clearly. Um, it's just exciting. And I love where you, with your energy and to think about net zero. I know I've been hearing about the term net zero since I was in college. And fortunately, we have the privilege of taking some classes, think about sustainable designs and really be mindful about things. But within the last few years, it, it, I recognize there's still debating about it. And I think timing is right. We have to do this now. Every house, when they start construction, have to begin to start those conversations. And when we start those conversations, action will then start taken. You got it, Grace. And there, there's so many advantages. Um, you know, we live it every day. So, you know, at a certain point for us, it's like the fish in the water. But in, in every room of the house, we never need to turn on a light if the sun is shining, right? It's a simple thing, but the design dictated that. Right? We knew we wanted the windows to operate a very specific way so that we would never need to turn on artificial light in the house. And the house, as a result of that, is a joy to be in. Right. Uh, the, the technologies are so much better. Um, the heat pump hot water heater that we were talking about right. is a fascinating piece of technology that really needs no maintenance. Um, if you have a tankless hot water heater, it, it has a yearly schedule for right. Be cleaned. It's right? very expensive. It's very expensive. And who wants to deal with the plumber coming to your house every year to clean that thing and, you know, more, right? And as you mentioned too, in an emergency, what happens? Uh, you know, in an earthquake, what happens? We know what happens. Cut off. The water gets cut off, right? The gas gets cut off. Um, if that happens in my house, I can turn those things back on and uh, a tankless hot water heater has about three ounces of water in it. Right. 
My tank has 50 gallons of fresh drinking water in it. So in the case of an emergency, I have 50 gallons of fresh drinking water. I think there's a public health aspect to this thing that we're not really calibrating into, you know, a resiliency aspect of having a tank of fresh, 50 gallons of fresh drinking water in case that thing happens, which we know it will happen. Um, so not only is there less chance of fire and explosion by not having the gas in the building, but these things have resiliency aspects to them that, you know, go even beyond that. Um, so, yeah, it's better, it's faster, it's cheaper uh, to build all electric at this point. You convinced me. <laughs> Preaching that I love it. And so I'm just also interested from your perspective, you have such an extensive knowledge of, let's say, East Coast. The the, the climate is quite different. Um, yes. Before you even cross the, 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 the pond to Europe and so forth and Asia, how are they, how, how are they thinking about these kind of uh, patterns? I know in Europe and Asia, they, some of, sometimes they, some of the country are a little bit more advanced than we are. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, there's some, uh, developers that I'm, uh, familiar with and, and we climbed on a, a telephone conference, uh, uh, about a year ago who were doing development in Philadelphia for $167 a square foot. They built a multi-family, multi-family, beautiful apartments, um, and their objective was to make it less expensive for the tenants. Yes. Right? For $167 square foot, they made a net zero energy, zero carbon apartment building in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia. Uh, so this is in that severe climate. Yes. Possible, right? As we know, the... Um, you know, the price of things is different in Philadelphia than they are in Southern California. Uh, so that allowed them to get to that number. Uh, our number was about $200 a square foot. Uh, so far yeah. cheaper than regular construction, actually. Right. It is less expensive than regular construction. So all this is possible, but they understood if you don't need the gas line, if you don't need those additional boilers, if you don't need all the um, chases that are required to get that gas out of the top of the building, right? All that stuff is eliminated. You end up with a, a roof plane that's much cleaner and better for the installation of solar panels, actually. So these things work hand in hand, one with the other, if you plan it out correctly. That's so you, you mentioned across the pond. Um, I had the honor of working in innovation school uh, as a guest lecturer for eight years. And to see what Scandinavia has done uh, from an environmental standpoint and a sustainability standpoint with their buildings and their technology. Uh, they're probably five to seven years ahead of us. And as a result, they reap the rewards in a very severe climate. Uh, they're able to do net zero energy for no additional cost. And they set up cities that have made commitments to net zero energy cities. Uh, so, you know, uh, what's that saying? The future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And just even, you know, fly into Denmark, you can definitely, Copenhagen, you can see out in the ocean, there's all this windmills. Um, yes, it's so great. The European, I, it's fascinating how they do things and they're far more advanced. And even just a few years ago, we went to Iceland, just how they use the energy. The yeah. most way you can Geothermal. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, and that, I just love how all these countries are advancing based on their physical location, geographic condition, and they're able to leverage those and to their advantage so they can be sustainable in that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. 
I, I can clearly, I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> You're <laughs> such a fascinating person. Um, what tips would you advise someone who's new to this industry and say, hey, I'd, I'd love to, to you know, learn and do things and how would they get started? What advice would you give them? Uh, there's so many good resources right now. I mean, um, what wasn't possible 10 years ago is definitively possible today. The price of solar and the batteries and you know, most of the technologies are dropping like a stone. Right. And, um, and the access to the information is, you know, it's incredible. Uh, Southern California Edison, for example, has put, in, put out a series of uh, case study books. Uh, our, our house was featured in one of those case studies uh, for free. Uh, so you can find those books online for free from the utilities. Uh, and the amount of information that is, is available, easily accessible, is uh, tremendous at this point. Uh, so there's there's no um, there's no difficulty there. Finding the people sometimes who can put it all together is sometimes the difficult part, and that's where just like you did, reach out to people who have done it, who understand what is possible, and um, they generally have a very good network as well. Uh, so somebody contacted me today from Southern California Edison and said, "Hey, do you, I'm trying to install a heat pump hot water heater, and I can't find a plumber, an electrician." Do you know somebody? I said, absolutely. And I plugged them right into the, the guys who did our house. And, you know, they did a tremendous job. And so, you know, the good people tend to know good people uh, in my experience. And so, you know, just tap into, you know, myself or other people who have done it. And uh, we're happy to help. Wow, you're such an inspiration. So, Robert, how would people get in touch with you? Clearly, they'll be like, glued to this session, just dying, taking notes furiously. How would they get in touch with you? Oh, uh, so they're more than welcome to email me. Uh, they can reach me at Fortunato at fourstrategy.com, uh, F-O-R-T-U-N-A-T-O uh, at uh, fourstrategy, F-O-R-S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y.com. Uh, and then feel free to, you know, some of these, we've, we've tried to make it accessible for everybody. We did a TED Talk, so if you put in my name and you put TEDx, You'll see the background on that and uh, in their articles and other things, uh, you know, to get a sense of what we've done. Uh, but, you know, I'm happy to field questions. and I'm, I'm probably uh, meeting a new person probably once a week. Uh, and it's a joy to help people uh, with whatever they're trying to do uh, in this space. I'm happy to do it. Well, thank you so much for elevating our knowledge and inspiring us and Net zero now doesn't sound that foreign anymore. It's, when you break down the lot, the, the, the process, everything is doable. So it is doable. So much, Robert. Really appreciate all your time and your wisdom. My pleasure. Thank you for 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 the time and for sharing uh, with everybody. Uh, you know your your genius as well in the communications and especially as a perspective as an architect and somebody in the field. It's really helpful. Appreciate. Looking forward to have more discussions with you in the future. Thank Likewise. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Revivify Podcast, where we talk with Robert Fortunato about how he and his family use simple strategies and off-the-shelf technologies to build their net zero energy, zero carbon home. They use details such as how their home and major windows are oriented and using energy-efficient appliances. His experience really proves that building green is no longer the edgy choice. It is now the realistic and the most cost and energy efficient option. Net zero energy and zero carbon building practices are compelling options
for anyone interested in owning high-quality home, saving money on energy bills, and improve the environment. I hope you were as inspired by what Robert shared as I was. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Brought to you by Bayrap.